Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 309, and I had a conversation with Dr. Jonathan Flint. He is a behavior geneticist, psychiatrist, and co-director of UCLA's Depression Grand Challenge. He's the professor in residence in the Department of Psychiatry and Biobehavioral Sciences at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA and is a senior scientist in the Center for Neurobehavioral Genetics at UCLA's Semmel Institute for Neuroscience and Human Behavior. He is considered to be a pioneer in the genetics of behavior. I really enjoyed our conversation. You know I love anything that has to do with the brain. And his work with depression and trying to get to the root of what the causes are, uh, finding the genetic component and these underlying complex behaviors, uh, anxiety, depression, really an extraordinarily important contributor to science and to mental health. And I was really excited to have a conversation with him. Shout out to Bob Zah for introducing us. I really appreciate it, Bob. Trigger warning on this episode, we do talk about depression and suicide. I think it's an important episode to listen to. We're in a mental health crisis in this country and worldwide. And the more that we talk about it and and try and get to the bottom and the root cause of it, the more that we stop vilifying depression and mental illness and mental health issues, the better off we're all going to be. Um, so we talk a lot about all these things. If you want to be a part of Dr. Flint's research study, he's here in the United States. As I mentioned, he's at UCLA. Uh, and I'm going to put links on the heyhumanpodcast.com site under the links page so that you can find it easily if you want to be part of the studies that, that he's he and his colleagues are conducting about depression and mental health. Okay, usual stuff, social media. Hey Human Podcast can be found on Instagram and Facebook. You can find my personal social media under Susan Ruthism on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can email me, Susan at HeyHumanPodcast.com. I try to answer every email, and uh, it may take me a minute, but I will definitely reach back out if you email me. Uh, the old episodes of Hey Human, so the algorithm on iTunes only allows for 300 to be visible at a time, but all the episodes are there, all the back episodes are there. If you go to heyhumanpodcast.com, you'll find every episode. It's just Apple, for some reason, only shows 300 at a time. So do not despair if you want to go deep diving into the old stuff. It is there, I promise. As I mentioned, the links page there on heyhumanpodcast.com, I curate the links from every episode, put them so that you can go straight to all the information and you don't have to search all over the place. It's it's right there. And you can deep dive on the guests and their research or their books or their whatever we talked about. If you'd like to help support Hey Human and keep it ad-free, you can do so on the contribute button there on heyhumanpodcast.com. You'll also find the storefront where you can get Hey Human merch, another great way to support Hey Human. Also rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. That definitely helps and shows your support. I also have a YouTube channel. It's under Official Susan Ruth. 
and please subscribe there. It really helps, and I appreciate it. If you go to SusanRuth.com, you'll find out more stuff about me and the things I do outside of the podcast, my art and music, and you can sign up on a mailing list there, and you'll find interviews that people have done with me where I'm the interviewee. Definitely check that out. If you're into music, find me on all the music places under Susan Ruth. My last record, All I Ever Wanted Was Everything, is available there. And got new music coming. Had a meeting about it a couple weeks ago, so new music is on the horizon. Very excited. And other than that, uh, there's nothing super new to report other than I've been checking out a couple TV shows. I loved Severance. I thought it was great. That's on Apple. I'm digging Tokyo Vice. I've been checking that out on Apple um, on Apple Television. They're killing the game, man. They are doing great on that Apple shows. Uh, what else have I watched lately? I loved Abbott Elementary. I'm very sad that I, the season finale happened because I'm missing watching that show. It was such a good laugh. Everybody on there is brilliant. Uh, so yeah, that's what books have I read. Um, I've just finished The 13th Hour, which was a good book. Uh, time travel sci-fi. I don't know if that's necessarily sci-fi, but time travel book, which was fun. And what else did I read? Really good. Oh, the plot. I read a book called The Plot. I did figure out who done it right away, but it was still a good read. So there's that. Okay, that's all of that business. Let's get into this. Thank you for listening, everyone. Stay safe. Be well. Be kind. Listen to each other. Love on each other, and take care of each other. Yeah. Okay. Here we go. Dr. Jonathan Flint, welcome to Hey Human. Thanks for having me. The first thing I usually do when I have these conversations is I ask people about their upbringing. Uh, so, okay, so I'm from, uh, um, born and brought up basically in South London. And um, my father was a, um, a lawyer. And uh, my mother at, I suppose, about the age I was maybe early teens, maybe a bit younger than that, joined an organisation called the Samaritans, which was the first, certainly in the UK and possibly in the world, uh, helpline for suicide crisis. Mm. And she used to go into the centre of London, there's a church with a rather damp crypt, where she would sit on in front of a bank of telephones and, and take calls um, from desperate people across most of London. Was she trained in this? Uh, this was just starting off. So I, I mean, I think the priest in charge of the uh, operation is a guy called the Reverend Chad Vara was the guy who set it up. At, at a certain point, yes, indeed, they they certainly trained people. Uh, I suspect my mother got in it at, at a pretty early stage, so maybe it was Chad and her and a few others that I can't remember if I ever knew. But I do remember very clearly one um, Christmas holidays being at home and something like Christmas Eve, um, my mother says, would I like to come with her and man a phone? And I said, well, I'll come with you, but sounds a little beyond what I can manage. And she said, no, don't worry, you'll manage. And she took me into the centre of London, grim, wet evening as ever. Um, sounds like London. Sounds like London. <laughs> that time of 
year it gets dark at about three o'clock in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. So we sit in this uh, church crypt and she puts me in front of a telephone and she says, take the call. And I said, what do I do? And she said, you listen. And a woman called in um, who told me that she wanted to kill herself, that she had the pills in front of her. And I listened and she talked. And in the end she said, thank you for listening. I'm going to throw away the pills. Mm. And it was a real lesson that just listening is a hugely important task. And um, I took that lesson and I realised that I could possibly do more than that. And it's one of the reasons why I ended up in psychiatry as a as a doctor listening to patients and then trying to help them, which is pretty hard. Um, we don't have very good medication and we don't have very good treatments. Is that because we don't truly understand the brain chemistry, really? I mean, we can make guesses and... We don't understand how brains work, yeah. basically, yeah. yeah. I mean, making in the last 10 to 15 years, we've made huge advances on a number of fronts and we will continue and I think we will find out what causes many of these conditions. But uh, at the moment, it's certainly a fog. And the treatments that we've got uh, are primarily discovered by chance. We've made important scientific discoveries, and there are aha moments which really do mean something. But for, for, for medicine, and certainly for psychiatry, that's not really how it's been so often. I mean, we can point to cases where people do understand the cause of a condition and have designed a, a therapy, but that's not the case for psychiatry. So the commonest um, treatments for uh, depression operate uh, on a neurotransmitter system that initially was used uh, for treating people with high blood pressure. And most of the, the, uh, the first generation antidepressants were discovered because people being treated for high blood pressure were becoming um, unhappy. And uh, therefore it was suggested that maybe if we alter that approach we could... Um, uh, re- uh, remove depression in people who had it uh, for, for other reasons than they were taking antihypertensive medication. So that's been the story all along. I mean, it's, you know, chance and uh, doctors thinking a bit outside the box and so on. I mean, lithium, for example, is a treatment for bipolar disorder. Again, uh, an entirely um, uh, unexpected and serendipitous discovery. What was then, its first intention? Uh, the lithium, um, not intended to to treat anything. I, mean, I see what is, you're saying. It just was an accidental... Yeah, it was an yeah. accidental discovery. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When you were first going into your studies then, did you particularly choose mental health, suicide, depression, or did you go for a generalized understanding and then work from there? Uh, so I went into medicine with the intention of going into psychiatry, um, but I haven't got a more clear idea because you really don't know anything I mean uh, you know the, the tr- well firstly I should say that the medical training I'd recommend to everybody it gives you an insight into all sorts of parts of the world that you'd, otherwise you'd never get and whether that's from childbirth through death you see everything in a way that's uh, you know it's a great privilege to have had that and um, and you learn a huge amount about yourself and about what you can do and what you can't do um, and I decided on doing psychiatry as a as a career after the medical training. And that means you can prescribe medicines? It means you can prescribe medicines. So the system 
as I discovered when I came here, is a little different. So I'm used to working with what we would call the community team. Uh, and when, I was in the, when I'm being examined as a trainee doctor, the, the way it works is that they'll give you a, like a, a test patient. So you, you go in and you talk to the, the person and try and work out what's wrong and then you're expected to come up with a treatment plan. And if you don't say something like, I will draw upon the resources of my community team, you will fail because it's accepted that psychiatric diseases are a broad spectrum of things which require all sorts of people to be involved. There are social components, there may be legal components, uh, as well as anything medical and physical. So you, you have to have all of those people involved. And that's the way that I've been trained to work and I expected to find that happens here only uh, to discover that here basically the psychiatrists monitor side effects of drugs and they can't even get psychological interventions. They have to beg and borrow. It's it's not just on the on the not sort of there as an easily prescribed tool. Why do you think that is? That's a very good question and I've been pressing my colleagues to answer that. Uh, the answers I get are along the lines of well we know it's wrong Jonathan and uh, it used to be different but it's the way the money works now and we are constrained and I've been pressing them to see that there are ways of changing that and could we set up some studies to show that actually it would save money if we did it in a different way. It's not an impossible situation to change but it's pretty entrenched here. It seems like the go-to method is drug first, the thing that needs the drug second. In other, in other words, like, oh, I have a bullet hole, put a bandit on it, and not ask why you've been in a gunfight. I wouldn't put it quite as bluntly as that. It's more that the psychiatrists, that's all they can do, really. I mean, they're, they're not... They're I meant medicine overall. Oh, medicine overall. Yeah, um, not just psychiatry. Mm, it seems possibly. like this country, to me at least, being a novice, I don't, yeah. I don't know, I'm not in medicine, nor am I in the government, yeah. nor am I in insurance, but it seems to me that that they they tend to not really listen to what might be causing the thing and just start metting out the drugs to fix whatever the result of the thing is. Well, what we hope, and this is why I do research in this area, is that we do understand the cause of the condition and the therapy should direct it to the cause. In psychiatry, it's all symptomatic. We don't have treatments for causes because we don't know what the causes are. Uh, we've made a lot of progress in schizophrenia and um, and bipolar disorder, autism, which are now pretty much clearly almost 100% due to inheritance. And that's going to make them really hard to treat. Not impossible, there's a bit of a feeling that if something is heritable, therefore it's not treatable, and that's not the case. But it, it, it's uh, that we do know now quite a lot about, about the genetic underpinnings of those conditions, and that's likely to give us some insight into what to, what to intervene. But how long that will take is anyone's guess. And you've done research that has distinguished a particular part of the brain or part of a gene? So we, we work, I work on depression, and depression is un, unlike uh, schizophrenia and autism, bipolar. It's, it's a uh, primarily environmental. It, and then that part of it, the 60% or so, if you think of it in terms of a dividing up the causes, uh, environment and genetic, 60% is in a sort of must be due to the environment. That's been looked at for a hundred or so years. And really all we know is that bad stuff can make you depressed. But what that bad stuff is and how it actually operates, we still 
really are, are grappling to understand. Um, but the other 40% we now have a handle on because we can get genetic data at an unprecedented level of resolution. And that allows us to firstly partition that component and say, okay, so it's like maybe you know, 30 whatever, 6% is, contrib- is attributed to by genetic variants. And, and we're now getting pretty close to this state where we can say these are the genetic variants that are involved. And what we know is that, there, that there's a lot of them. It's not like um, cystic fibrosis or Huntington's disease where there is a gene. It doesn't work like that at all. Instead, there's thousands, possibly tens of thousands of contributing effects, each of which is tiny. And that's made it really hard. And then a lot of scientists have turned around and say, why bother? Because what you're looking at is this mass of tiny effects. What on earth is that ever going to uh, tell you? And there's this ongoing argument about that. Um, but the, the, there's a, a lot of evidence, particularly from other conditions, which have progressed more along this route, that you can take those very tiny effects and you can turn them into biological signatures. And that will tell you what the pathways are, what the causes are in the physiological sense. Though as yet, no one's come up with a sort of satisfaction satisfactory condition, uh, sort of pathway, uh, satisfactory mechanism for saying, let's say, whether it's autism or depression, this is what happens. Firstly, this protein changes, and then there's a change in the membrane, and then there's transmutation. No one's got to that stage yet, but there is the possibility that that will eventually be the outcome. And once you've got that sort of pathway, and you can say it's A, B, C, and D, then you're in a strong position to intervene. But in the case of something like depression, we have to say, well, okay, so there's a biological pathway, but you just told me, Dr. Flint, that it's 60% environmental, so how do you put those two together? And the answer to that is that it gives us a handle knowing the genetic effects, how the environment works. And although that might sound odd, if you think about this, you probably know people who, for a holiday, will jump out of an aeroplane, climb a rock face, and there are others who just want to lie on the beach. So personalities, which that reflects, put us in different situations. And the people who lie on the beach are less likely to have a bad thing happening to them than those people who put themselves in dangerous circumstances. So you can immediately see that there's some interaction between an, a genetic predisposition and, and an environmental effect. And the same is true in depression. In fact, there's some very classic work looking at people who have what we call stressful life events happen to them, accidents, things you might think happen completely out of the blue, like crashing a car. Or it turns out that there are some people who actually had to happen to them much more often than they should do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that reflects the fact that they have a different personality, and personality in part reflects a genetic predisposition. So these things are, are, are closely intertwined. So if you have a handle on the genetic component, you can then say, hey, look, here's a group of people, they're all depressed. But this group of people, they're much more likely to have got depressed because of their genetic predisposition, whereas that group of people we've looked at, and we can't find any genetic predisposition. So these are much more likely to have a have a, a uh, an environmental cause, and that's, that's one of the ways of thinking about this problem. That's that's pushing us to think of depression not as one disease at all. That you should think of it a bit more like. Um, a high temperature, having a fever. So when you go to your doctor and you say, look, I've got a temperature, if all he does is put a thermometer in your mouth, confirm, and then give you some Tylenol to go home, that's not very good medicine. But that essentially at the moment is what's happening with depression. I'm very depressed, doctor, so I'll ask you some questions, confirm that you are, I'll give you an antidepressant and go home. Without any attempt, because we don't really know how, to find out why you were depressed and, and, and address the cause of it. 
Whereas if it was a high temperature, then you'd be investigated. Is it an infection? Is it autoimmune disease? Is it some metabolic problem? Is it cancer? There's a whole set of things that, that we could uh, investigate and find out. And what we really want to do is turn the situation around. So when you come in to the doctor and say, I'm feeling miserable, I'm depressed, I can't get out of bed, I can't sleep well, that then we'll, that will set in train the set of investigations that would be typical in medicine that we'd really pull this apart and say, well, the reason you're depressed is such and such and you need to go and see a psychotherapist because this is, we think, the problem. Or the reason you're depressed is because there's been some change in the way your brain is functioning and we're going to give you this to help you get better. But we're nowhere near that at the moment. Hmm. If I had a traumatic brain injury and couldn't, let's say, I don't know, remember how to tie my shoes, and after a year or two, perhaps, my brain will find a new route to take and I'll be able to tie my shoes. It, it navigates it around the damage and, yeah. and that yeah. happens. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Uh, why, if the brain is so determined, does it seem, this is conjecture, right. obviously, from a question I'm asking you, why is it, you think, that the brain, knowing self-preservation is an automatic default I would think for most species especially human species because we're smart enough to know why do you think it is that there are some moments where the brain turns off that very primal need to be alive so why do people kill themselves that's basically what I'm asking yeah why is there not an override if the brain is know. going I'm gonna learn how to retie a shoe something so simple why isn't it why, saying why? We, we, we'll find another way you know yeah, we don't know why I mean, it's a good question, and we don't know the answer. Hmm. This country clearly has a mental health crisis happening. I mean, long before COVID came along and made everyone start crazy. Hmm. Is that, would you say that it's a global crisis at this point? Because uh, I've read articles about so tribes that are happy as clams and that they have very little depression. Treat those with a certain degree of scepticism. Mm. I mean, a lot of this depends on how you'd actually assess whether people are happy or, or unhappy. It, it's, it's really hard. Um, all of us as psychiatrists will tell you stories about having somebody come in who will show no sign of, and deny any low mood um, and then go out and kill themselves pretty soon after. And if you talk to such people who've had those thoughts, often, you know, if you get to know them and can really get them to open up, I, I mean, I, I, I've had women telling me that, um, one woman in particular telling me how, you know, she was getting the family's um, food ready one evening, and and she, but she, all she was thinking about was timing things so that when everyone had gone to bed, she could go and kill herself. She was performing all of these functions perfectly normally. No one, not, not, no one would have known. But that was all that was in her head. It was almost like almost like an obsession. Just, mm. this is what I have to do next. It's the next thing on, on my list. So it's really hard to know. Uh, and, I, and I think uh, if someone comes in and says, we've done a survey and we've found X number of people who have said that they're miserable or not, I mean, how serious is that misery, and what does it really mean within the context of those societies? It's so I think it's pretty hard to yeah. sort of sort that out. Sure, I've said that to a couple friends that you know who get nervous when I say dark things or, or whatever, mm -hmm. and I say, 
oh, it's not when I'm talking about it that you should be worried. It's if no, it's I while I'm stop. Doing it. Well, that, but what if I stop talking yeah. about it? I think from the friends that I know who have uh, taken their own life, that it was when they got quiet and seemed like everything was fine, that mm. was the big red flag. Mm. I know that now, but when I was younger, mm. it was just shock. Yes, and, and, uh, and the other thing which is, is that there's a, there's a bit of a um, taboo about asking people mm. if they are feeling like killing themselves. A lot of people believe that if you do that, um, you might make it worse, or you might put that idea into somebody's head. I mean, this is not true. Um, and one of the, the most, the, the, you know, the simple things you can do if you are worried about somebody, just ask them, have you thought about killing yourself? Has that thought gone across your head? Do you worry about the future? Do you worry about yourself? Do you think you might not exist? How, how do you think about yourself? There's sort of just questions along those lines which sound a little brutal sometimes, often can be hugely re relieving for the person to say, well, actually, no, I have thought about this. I did want to die and I have been thinking that my life is worthless and so on. Isn't it a common thought, though, even across, even if it's just a moment that goes by? I Do you feel mean like, in a lifetime? Or yeah, in a, in a lifetime yeah, that people yeah. are, I, I often yeah. joke on the show, I say, well, gosh, if you haven't thought about killing yourself, you're not paying attention yeah. <laughs> to the yeah, world at large. Thought, everyone would, have, would at some point, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I would say that's normalcy. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. But it's when it becomes like an overriding thought and all you're thinking about is how you... Right. And when it's taking then it's over getting, your life. it's taking over your life. How are you informing your work now? I assume you're still meeting with patients? Not here. I'm not allowed to. I'm not registered. Oh. I only have UK registration, Gosh, so I can't see patients. the same thing, practically. How long have you been here? Six years now. Oh, so it's been a while. Do you miss mm. seeing your patients? Not really. No. <laughs> Don't tell them that. I won't tell them. <laughs> uh, no, I'm. I'm. I mean, uh, I have a a, a close friend, uh, um, a psychiatric colleague, and uh, some years ago I was talking to him about about this, and the research is very time consuming, and it involves because um, of the, some of the things we've been doing. So there was a lot of travel which meant that I was coming in to see patients maybe once a week, and sometimes I'd have to cancel that. Um, and, um, and my friend said, Jonathan, are you really doing a good job with your patients? Because, you know, like, this is not a sort of... Consistent, thing. yeah. And, you know, you need, maybe you should take a look at this. And, and you, there are many doctors who can do um, um, psychiatry, but there are not, not many that are doing what you're doing and maybe it's a better use of your time and I thought that was actually very sensible advice so mm. I yeah okay so maybe I should stop this let's dig into your research going back to the conversation about how we think depression is not one disease but many that raises a question of how you would go about um, making progress so if you think of this as if we went back 50 or 60 years maybe more and we're trying to solve cancer. We were having this conversation, you and I, and we'd know that there are people uh, dying um, and they would have this uh, very severe um, condition. They would just be losing weight and they'd be, um, um, temperature regulation would go, they might be losing hair, or, and they might have 
uh, lumps and whatever growing. I mean, all sorts of things might be happening to these people, but we'd, we'd know there was something similar about them uh, and sort of end-stage cancer. But what we didn't know is that, in fact, each of those people had a different cancer. One might be disseminated um, uh, bone, one might be disseminated uh, bowel, um, even uh, a hematological cancer. There's a whole set of tissues, each of which would initially present differently, but in the end, as it progresses to the end, would look pretty much the same. So how will we go about doing that? Now, if we collected a whole lot of people all in that end state, we wouldn't know about this difference. They'd all look a bit the same. So would, be, would there be some way that we could identify subgroups, which is essentially how the cancer biologists um, went about it? So if you think about the same with depression, what would we do? So we take the clinical hints as to what types might be more homogenous, where we might make an impact. So what do we know? Well, firstly, we know that um, it's a disease that's commoner in women. It's a disease that's uh, genetically um, is different in people who have multiple episodes than if you have a single episode. And there's a bit of other evidence suggesting that single episode depression does look different from multiple episodes. And then if you collect your sample from within hospitals, people who've been to hospitals, they ha that tends to have a slightly different profile um, as well. And then there are differences about age of onset. So people who have later age of onset, 50s and 60s, that tends to get um, the roots of that lie, at least a proportion of it, will lie in cardiovascular disease, early onset dementia. Mm. So you, you probably don't want to look at that group. Not to say none of these like early onset or late onset, not to say they're not important, but if you want to get at sort of the common core stuff, then maybe that's not the place to start. So we decided let's, let's only look at women, let's only look at women with recurrent depression, let's look at them between the ages of 30 and 50, and then there were a few other uh, exclusion criteria. And by the time you put all those restrictions in place, what is overall a very common disorder, so we'd expect maybe 10 to 15% of people um, to have one episode in their lifetime, it becomes much, much rarer. Um, but it would still require us to collect a large sample because of this issue about it being heterogeneous, because even though we've done our best to make it a homogenous, we're guessing, and almost certainly that group is still going to have a lot of different origins, so we want to have a large number. And so we thought, we've a lot of work, so where could we get this sort of sample? It needs to be a, a lot of people, we need to collect this quickly, we need them well phenotyped, we've got to ask them all these questions and so on. And I knew, because I was in Oxford at the time, that there was a unit in the, uh, what's called the Clinical Trial Services Unit in Oxford. They're a group that have been looking at the effects of drugs. Uh, and they're the group, for example, that showed that aspirin is good for heart attacks, and they worked on um, a series of uh, uh, medications which are now in common use and they worked out those effects because they looked in very large sample sizes and um, and I knew that one of the things they'd done is gone to China and I happened to be on a train and there was a guy on a phone uh, sitting near to me and I worked out who it must be from this phone call and I said excuse me sorry to interrupt your phone call but I work in the building next to you and we're working on depression and I, you, I know you collect these big samples and how do you do it and can you help me with this? And he put me in contact with a group in, uh, in his collection team, as it were, and they had some contacts in China, and we negotiated over a number of years with them, and eventually we started sample collection in China, which went on for about four or five years until we collected, in the end, about 12,000 people. When you say sample, though, you're not talking about 
getting a little biopsy of the brain. You're talking about verbal No, I'm talking about, yes, it's a little jargony. So what it means is that we need, um, I need, if you were my subject in my study, I would need to sit down with you. If you're a a case, someone with depression, I need probably about 90 minutes of your time and then a saliva sample so we can collect some DNA. If you're a control, takes a the, the interviews is less but still you know half an hour or so because we want to make sure that we haven't missed anything and that we can compare differences because mm-hmm. as, as I said this is because of the environmental components we need to get a lot of information about what's happened to you your background there's this um, very striking observation that um, the single most um, biggest risk factor for depression is childhood sexual abuse that pushes up your risk 20, 30 fold in some cases if it's very severe. Uh, and the um, pattern is uh, rather unusual uh, in that if you have a stressful thing happening to your partner, um, dies or you suffer some illness or whatever, there's about a three month uh, lag between um, interval between that event happening and your onset of depression depression if, these, if they're causally related. And we know that now from quite a lot of work. But early onset, that's of childhood effects, that's lifetime. That really messes you up. Whether or not they remember the incidents? Uh, these are the sort of thing they would remember. I mean, we're dealing with pretty severe abuse. Mm-hmm. And that indicates that an environmental effect has to have multiple pathways because you don't see this sort of uh, prolonged effect that you do with childhood abuse in, in adult onset due to stressful life events. So we need to collect all that information when we're interviewing you, because going back to this question about it being heterogeneous or not, I would like to sort out those people whose depression can be attributed to early life events and those, those that can't. Now our problem, of course, is we only get 90 minutes of your time and I'm going to be asking you a hell of a lot of stuff. And I'm basically going to ask you to think back over your whole lifetime, break it up into chunks of about two weeks, and tell me if any of those two-week periods you've suffered from these uh, episodes of depression and what they've been like. And so it's a very crude instrument, very hard for us to uh, really understand um, what's happened to you. Mood itself affects memory, so we're going to be dependent not only on your own recall, but whether your mood is sufficient to tell us. And memories are fallible. And me- well, memories are hugely fallible. So it's a very, very, very um, crude tool. So we've, d- we've done that. But one of the reasons I came to UCLA is because UCLA set up this um, uh, campus-wide initiative called the Depression Grand Challenge. And, and they said this is such a big problem that we can't have just one small group of researchers or uh, doing it. We want to involve all sorts of people from all sorts of disciplines. Um, tackle it from all sorts of angles and and, and I think one of the, the important innovations that we've been trying here is trying to collect that sort of information but in a very new way and that is to try and collect the information longitudinally from observational data so rather than asking you if you're depressed the whole time or what's happening to you I'm actually monitoring you and the way we monitor you is we take information off your phone that's a simple way of doing it mm. how often are you using your phone what time are you going to bed? Most people turn their phones off or put it down in the evening. First thing in the morning, they turn it on. So you get a simple measure like that. Um, where are you? Where are you spending time? How much are you moving about? So two of the cardinal features of depression are alterations in activity and alterations in sleep. So just to, we can get that off your phone. 
Hmm. We piloted this in, um, in, in a student cohort, uh, and it's really surprisingly accurate. If you just look at the, the on-off times for phone, you can see suddenly someone starts getting up much earlier in the morning than they should be, and they have a, like a couple of weeks period of, of really early morning wakening. Uh, and then they get treatment and, and it gets better. And so I don't even know to, need to ask them about that. I can see it all documented. And what we're hoping is that there will be many other little features that you don't know about that we can pick up on, which would then be predictive of mood in ways that uh, would allow us, again, to deal with this issue of heterogeneity. So maybe there's groups of people about, out there who some other feature, maybe the way that they're using their phones. So simple things like how they touch the phone, how long it takes you to type, those might be giving us information. Mm -hmm. Lots of stuff like that we can begin to pull out and, and that'll really help us make predictions. And ideally, we'd really like to be able to say, please come and see me. I think you're getting depressed. And you'll reply, no, I don't think I am. So no, 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 I'm really a little bit worried about you. And I'll know that because we'll have predictors. Mm. And intervening early, would be really helpful and that might save lives. The, you made me think of the sleeping thing is interesting. So especially since so you said, come see me and people say, oh, I'm fine, that there are people that are in a state of depression that might not even be aware that they're depressed. And I think that happens a, a lot. lot. Yeah. <laughs> they yeah. don't even know. Yeah. And not only do they not know, but it's being facilitated and pushed forward by social media and all these things that kind of survive on you being depressed and feeling shitty mm. about the mm. world and you at yourself and your image and all that. Mm. How do you go up against something, these megaliths? Um, well, we've, we've spent some time... <laughs> so I, I have to admit, I... I <clears throat> I, I had no experience of social media. I'm not on Facebook and I wasn't on Twitter until a scientific colleague told me I should be because you can get lots of hints and things from people reading other stuff that I should have read and so on. Um, so it was a, coming here, um, people were asking those sorts of questions about the one that, like the one you posed. And they said we should be speaking to what they called influencers. I had no idea what an influencer was and they, they <laughs> They introduced about half a dozen of these from the um, in UCLA students who had Twitter followers of sort of hundreds of thousands, um, and um, and our job was to try and convince them to promote our cause and um, get them to sort of uh, say it's okay to be part of this study and we support this sort of work and get people to talk about it more. So you, you can turn it to your advantage, I guess, mm. um, but it's it's a little, as you know, a little wild. We don't really. Uh, know how best to manage it. I'm assuming in your work you get to watch brains light up or not. Is that true in depression? Oh. Like if somebody's depressed that maybe... Are you talking about sort of doing... Uh, putting brain mapping. In, in a scanner and looking for brain activity mapping. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, a lot, a lot has been done in depression. Um, it's not been hugely helpful to be honest. Okay. So the observations are that you can see re reduced activity in certain regions of the brain, but it's not like a consistent pattern. Um, and the major problem is we don't really know, you, you can't uh, dissociate cause from correlation. So um, is what you're seeing just a consequence of someone being depressed or does it, as it were, reflect the core emotional processes? Is it a part of the brain which is driving all of this or, or is it reflecting changes elsewhere? We don't, we don't know that.
Um, so, so I, I can't I, I can't stick you in a scanner and say you're depressed. Yeah, that's, that's kind of what I that's was wondering. Not really good. It's no, not a thing. No, no, not a thing. I'm yeah, afraid. too bad. <laughs> That'd be nice. But I but I think we might we're getting fairly close to being able to do it just on your phone. Hmm. I mean the the way. The re- I think one of the reasons that sticking you in a scanner doesn't work is because that's that's going to be comparing you with a whole lot of other people. So we'd be looking in one part of the brain and saying, um, is this the same as all these other people? But I just told you that we think it's all very heterogeneous. When we started collecting the data from the students, uh, the first thing we did is we broke them up into, say, two groups, one of which had been clinically assessed to be depressed and one of which we hadn't. And then we took all of these features and we asked, well, can we see differences in these phone um, measures? And the short answer was not really, a little bit, but there wasn't very much there. So I said, well, let's think of this as a clinician. And, and I'm not really interested in how you, you are compared to a group. I'm interested in how you are compared to what you were last week or the week before. Um, and I'm particularly interested if, if I see a, a real change from what from what I'm used to seeing you when you come and see me. So rather than do the comparison with the population, let's do it as an individual. So we, we have data over like six months and we say like take three months of training data and we just take all this information and we say, oh, now we have a pattern and that's you. So does it deviate? And can we predict any deviations? And then we do a much better job. And then we can predict change with about a 90% accuracy. And that sounds good, but, you know, like, if you're gonna, if I'm going to miss 10% of people who kill themselves, that's not good. So it's not good enough clinically, but at least it tells us that those sorts of approaches could give us the information that we need. Does the brain's plasticity help or hinder your work, or does it have any... I should definitely hope that it that it will help. I mean, that's the sort of thing that we'd want to draw upon to allow people to deal with crises in ways that they don't at the moment. I mean, there maybe there are certain types of um, brains, architectures, which which just don't really cope very well. And that's going to be really hard to change. I read a book, but, but it talked about how in the the first two world wars that they found that when people shot at the enemy, they would shoot maybe over the head or to the side. There was a, mm. the instinct, instinct yeah. was to not harm not, not another harm human yeah. being. And this vexed the military. Mm. And so they brought in psychiatrists, psychologists, all sorts of people to figure out what it was, why some people, there were some people that were willing to kill, no problem. Mm. But there was a great majority of people that were not. And... So they brought in all these people and figured out how to convince a brain to be a killer. Hmm. And they found that in Vietnam, they they spiked the, the death, you know, hmm. the kill ratio. Hmm. I think about that book a lot. <laughs> Just it's interesting to me how so much can be. Well, how you can change people's attitudes. Yeah, so toward that. toward literally anything. I mean, if you could change somebody's attitude toward killing another human being just by framing them the other human being differently but doesn't that ref- also go back to your comment about social media that it oh yeah change people's opinions in ways that we don't really absolutely understand and we can do that very effectively and they just did just, a, a research where they took i think it was 700 people who 
spent hours watching Fox News and they brought them in and they were forced to watch the other networks that were not the right leaning. Oh, I remember, yes, this, comparing it with CNN that mm-hmm. didn't make a difference. And on did. the other side of the test, they they were no longer in that spell of the right-wing media, mm. which I thought was really mm. interesting. So perhaps now they're in the spell of the left-wing media. I don't know, but it does speak a lot to what the brain will do. I'm fascinated by mm. it. Does the do the companies like 23andMe, where they've they've compiled so much data over the years, is there a conjunction that can happen so you can look at all this massive, or really because it's so individualized to the person and you're trying to figure that part out that doesn't really help you? That's a, that's a very good question. And there's a group of my colleagues uh, who believe quite strongly that that's a really useful way to go. Mm. Um, and I've argued strongly the opposite uh, because the data that um, 23 and me have for psychiatric conditions is very, very limited. For example, they'll ask you, um, has your doctor ever told you that you have depression? And if you say yes, then that's a case of depression. Uh, and then contrast that with what I told you we've mm-hmm. done in our study. We spent an hour and a half going through all of this stuff, your background. And then we come to a decision as to whether you're involved, uh, whether you have depression or not, and we have all the background symptoms and and so on. Uh, And we looked at the data from 23andMe and uh, showed that, in fact, what it's picking up is, um, at least this is a a genetic study, so we we use that in a sense. We're using the genetics as a tool here to answer this question about things being the same or not. And what we find is that the... um, there is a predisposition to dysphoria, just generally general misery, uh, which which maps across all sorts of things. Whether whether you'll find it in, not surprisingly, in almost any psychiatric illness, there's it's just unhappiness, if you like, um, and there's there's clearly some of that in depression. But that's not what we're really getting at. I mean, what we want to get at depression is is what makes that a specific illness um, and gives you that core state of not wanting to eat, um, poor sleep, all these what we call vegetative symptoms on top of this terrible feeling of, um, of misery and self-loathing and all the other features that go with that. And then and the, the, the features of depression are very variable. I mean, the list that we get taught as doctors to elicit is only a small proportion of all the things that we could be asking about. And indeed, the sorts of things that in the past you might have been asked about. To take one example, it's pretty common for people who get depressed to report, if you ask them, a feeling of um, like this sort of depersonalization or derealization. It's like, I'm not part of the world anymore, doctor. I feel like dissociated. I don't feel in touch. That's very common. We never ask that as, as doctors. It's not on the, the list which has been compiled. Um, but not everyone reports this, and it's the fact that they do and don't is that important. And then I was telling you about the um, stopping eating and, and um, poor sleep. But there are conversely people who eat more I was and just put on say, weight. Yeah, and, 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 and people who sleep, sleep more. Yeah. And that also we call depression. That's makes no sense. I mean, why would you put those two things together? But we do. So 
I think it's key that we really have much more detailed information and just relying on, on those rather simple ways of assessing it is not adequate. This is a weird question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Do you think that the amount of... Obviously, we now have, what, 8 billion people almost, and it's twice as many in my lifetime on the planet than there were before I was even born. Was there always the same amount of depression or... Are we oh, ramping so back, back up? your question about that. Um, I don't think we know the answer to that. There's, it, it's, uh, and that's, I'm not sure you, how, how you really go about answering that question. The, 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 so the data we've, the sort of really careful data we've got are from studies where people have gone out and done what I described, which is you go, go into a population, you choose people randomly, and you, and you really ask them in detail about their mood and all the background things. That's a very expensive thing to do. And even with relatively high rates on the order of 10 to 15% world, um, lifetime, you're still going to have to interview lots and lots of people to really get a good estimate of, and then you want to know whether it's changed over time, so you're going to have to do it again and again. That makes it incredibly expensive. Mm. So, so it's hard data to get, to get hold of. What we do know is that there do seem to be some differences between populations. So East Asians tend to report it less, and there's some question as to whether that's just because they don't want to talk about this, or culturally, culturally could it be that? But if you look at the way people have gone about eliciting the information, I don't think that's, that's entirely to blame. Mm. So, so rates are um, maybe sort of 5 or 6% in Southeast Asia, as, as against maybe 10% here, but... I've already said that it's more common in women, so you've got to take that into account, depending on the age group. There's a whole set of factors that can confound that. But we don't, it's not like we go in and we find in every population it's always exactly the same. So if that's true, then of course you'd expect it to change over time, because we know that situations change in populations. So there probably, there probably are changes, and there probably are differences between different groups. But it's, it's hard information to get, and just how robust any of that is, I would... I would question. The whole of it sounds Sisyphean, to be honest. Uh, going back to the what I was referencing before about people who were already okay with killing someone else versus not, mm. why do you think, personally, because, I mean, I'm sure the answer is, nobody knows, <laughs> but why do you mm. think it is that some people come from abuse, childhoods with abuse, and don't and, seem and to don't. get depressed? Yeah, that's a very good question. And there's a lot of interest in what's called resilience research. So can we, if, if, if rather than tackling the problem of why these people are depressed, maybe it might be easier to find those people who are resilient. That might give us a different, uh, different insight. And yes, that's been attempted. We don't have answers yet, but mm. um, we've tried that by separating our group of patients, those who've reported really bad stuff happening and them, and those who don't. And what we find is that those who don't report um, any stressful life events, not surprisingly, the condition does turn out to be more genetic. It's more heritable. Mm. Uh, and we find that the genetic effects differ between those who do and, and don't report that. So there's some evidence that we, that indeed would separate out those groups. But we don't have a group of resilient people. It's pretty hard to know where we get them on the scale we need. Um, we thought about this. I mean, what would you do? We go to somewhere like Romania where they've had, you know, like, like those awful um, um, orphanages uh, and just could we, will we get enough people like that? Is that, would that be sufficient? I, I, 
You would almost know. have I, to I, get I, babies and follow them their entire lives. You or would, twins, or I twins, suppose. or something. Yeah. yeah, but it's going to be really hard to get that sort of information. Mm-hmm. But people have been trying this. Um, who's, I think the the um, uh, there's groups that use the veterans mm-hmm. um, to get at this because you know that these are groups who obviously have some pretty bad stuff happening to them, and very high rates of uh, psychiatric disorder. But then also some who don't. So that's an, an, a, I, I, there are people I know who are looking at that, but I don't know if they found anything yet. Wow, we're so complicated, aren't we? Yeah. I remember uh, I had a neuroscientist on the show a few years ago, and he invited me to come check out the research, and I got to hold a brain in my hands, and nobody was using it at the time, don't worry. <laughs> it was... We're talking human brain. It was a human it. brain, and it was awe-inspiring. It, to see mm. it like that, it's... It's hard to put it into words. It was very moving to think, mm. who, firstly, who was this person? What brought them to this moment where I'm now holding them in my hand? Uh, what were their thoughts mm. and their dreams and their hopes? What didn't get realized? What did they achieve? And, I mean, we have a short time on Earth anyway. And this planet will beat the shit out of you in a lot of ways. So I just, it frustrates me to think that, first of all, depression is, is such a bad word. I think it's getting better, but if you had cancer, like you said before, and if you typed on your Facebook page, crap, I have cancer, prayers for me, people would rally, mm. they'd put walks, they'd do GoFundMes, all this stuff. If you typed, I haven't gotten out of bed in a week, a lot of people will be like, oh, that sucks, you know, feel better, whatever. Or they would shit talk you behind your back. Or, you know what I mean? Like, there's so much stigma mm. around it. It's a real shame because I think that's a battle. It's going to be a hard one mm. battle to get to the other side when mm. there is so much around depression mm. and the stigma of it. Mm. I, I agree. We, we Within the UCLA program, uh, we thought hard about all of the different things that we needed to address. And um, one, there are, f- there are four. We ended up with four four components. Um, there was um, the stuff that I'm most interested in, not surprisingly, the discovery stuff, which we've talked about. Uh, and then there's the uh, it has to be a treatment arm, and those two arms need to to interdigitate. And then there's a, a neuroscience uh, component to it. But there was a fourth area, which is the one you've mentioned, which is um, stigma, which um, we decided should really be um, given a sort of positive spin. If you, if you start talking about, about stigma, then that also can be um, difficult. One of the, we spent some time discussing this with um, people in the drama, history, English departments. And so the, the drama people have, have this idea about te- teaching people to tell their stories. And um, to give one example, they encourage students to come and say about their own um, life history and stuff that had happened to them. And there was, there was one boy, very moving, who talked about his um, depression and was prepared to do that and, and did it in, in, an, in public, in, in an audience. And it was, it's very moving when people come up and tell you about that. And that certainly breaks down the barriers. And I felt that was an an important um, way to go. 
Um, but there's, there's, there's myself, my colleague Nelson Freimer, who's also a psychiatrist, and Michel Krask, who's a, a psychologist. So there's a team of three of us that, that run this. Um, we, um, we have a lot of support from the university. A little bit of money, not a huge amount and compared to the size of the project. And it's really our job to expand that and uh, do, do more. Uh, and we have not done a great job in, in tackling um, the, uh, the stigma, the storytelling issues yet. We, really, we keep on trying to get people involved. And if there's anyone listening to your podcast, get hold of me if you want to take hold of this problem because we really want to get it going. Uh, we're working hard on the other components. It is a, we realise this is at least a quarter of the problem um, mm. and it would certainly help all the other components if there was better communication and people were talking more freely about this. How might people get a hold of you? Oh, you can look me up if you just put Jonathan Flint into Google, but um, otherwise it's jflint at mednet.ucla.edu. Perfect. So what's next? What, what's the next step of everything? Just more of the same, trying to just keep compiling more and more data and hope that eventually things will cross and you'll have the aha? Uh, I, I, I wish I know, knew. I mean, we're taking the things that we know we can do. So we know that the genetic approaches work and that we will find things out. Um, where that leads us, I can't say. Science is essentially... Um, a sort of problem-solving exercise and for many scientists it's um, hypothesis driven which is to say I think the reason this is happening is because of and I'll design an experiment to test it but there's a group of us geneticists of which I'm one um, who say well look I know that there's a genetic component to this condition but I don't know what the individual bits of it are so I'm I'm gonna do this um, what sometimes gets called like a fishing trip exercise. I'm just going to go and look and see what I can find. Um, a polite way of putting it is, is we're going to be generating hypotheses. So we're going to collect this information, the genetic information, and we'll look at it and then we'll say, oh, that suggests that the cause of depression might be A. And then we can go into my more hypothesis-driven uh, research. So at the moment, we're very much in hypothesis-generating mode. We don't really know where to focus um, our work. Hmm. Um, come back and ask me maybe five five years maybe yeah. being optimistic I'll say five years okay I will <laughs> I, again this is all conjecture but eventually do you think it will be a thing where I come to you and say I have depression you can kind of figure out where that depression is in the brain and then either root it out maybe a little or like give me a drug that'll go right to it or i mean honestly well, that might the be day, so, you know? might, so let, let's let's um so um here's just one hype one idea which is that there may be a certain proportion of depression which is due to some response to infections disease uh, and you can think of this as the evidence for this in, in, in the way that when you get flu, um, it alters your mood. People sort of some people get a little manic, some people just get really miserable. And um, well, long COVID is now looking like an example of this. And there's a lot of interest in trying to understand what does COVID do to the brain. Is you know we, we, how much are we going to be facing a uh, uh, an upsurge in um, psychiatric conditions? due to COVID, mm -hmm. COVID infections. We don't, we don't know the answer to that. 
So there's very likely to be some component of depression which is driven by that. Uh, so maybe if we have the right antiviral drug, we can cure your depression that way. That might be one simple way of doing it. But my guess is for most of these things, it's going to have to be a combination of all sorts of things. I mean, just going back to how I described psychiatric practice, I don't think any psychiatric practice is ever going to be purely biological. We're always going to have these other components that we're going to have to deal with. And you'll need some psychological help. You may need some um, help at home. If you're not getting out of bed and doing things, can we support you that way? I'm almost certainly there'll be a mixture of things. But if we know what the cause is, we'll be in a much better state to really tackle that first. And then the other supportive symptomatic relief uh, will only be adjunct. For your listeners, I think there are a couple of things. The first is to say that um, just from going back to what I said at the very beginning, that it's possible um, when you're faced with somebody who th- you think's depressed, that um, you can do something, you can listen. And I think that's a really simple and important message, not to be um, frightened of asking the questions uh, and just getting people to talk and just to listen how they are. That's, that's really useful. You can get involved. Um, and then there's always more you can do. Contact me. I mean, this is a this is a this is definitely a global issue. I mean, there are so UCLA was very unique, but um, that's not enough. We need entire countries to take this on. Every country, once it gets into research, is something like a national cancer institute. No country, with a possible exception of I think the Australians, has a national depression institute. It's never taken at that scale, and yet we know that depression is the leading cause of disability in the world now, topping everything. Mm. So we need everyone to get involved. This is not a problem that we can solve. Why is nobody wanting to talk about it? Well, I think one of the reasons has been that there was so little that we could do. Everyone realised it was a big problem. But what was the point of throwing lots of money at this problem if you couldn't achieve anything? And that situation has changed. So we were talking earlier about how we're making progress in understanding how brains work. That is beginning to change our understanding of disease and it will continue to do so. There's no doubt that's going to make an impact. Uh, We have huge resources now that we can draw upon for genetic research and they again will tell us a lot about how conditions arise. Lots is is happening there. And then putting that together with our ability, as we've been describing, to collect observable information about behaviour, we are standing at potential revolutionary change in our understanding of the origins of, of, of psychiatric disease. So now's the time, but it's it's taken a long time to get here. So there's been a backlog of people saying, no, we, we can't do anything. And of course, the other reason is the one we've discussed about stigma. People don't want to talk about it. It's hard to get them to say. Generationally, I think that's getting better. Yeah, that's also true. Yeah, yeah. I'm seeing it more and more. The younger younger people are willing to say, I'm not happy. I slept for the last two months straight and things like yeah, that. So that's, yeah. that's good. I mean, that's not good, but it's good that people but are talking about it. It's good that they talk about it. Yeah. Hmm. I recommend a room of puppies, kitties, and baby oh, tigers. Yeah, that would be nice. <laughs> I'm not sure about the baby tigers. They have rather sharp teeth. Oh, and they're babies, though. Well, they still have sharp teeth. <laughs> so do kittens. It's nice to rub that. Yes, that's true. They also have sharp teeth. <laughs> they're mini tigers. <laughs> Jonathan, yeah. thank you so much not for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank no you for listening, everybody. Bye. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye.